morning. Good morning. We are going through church history. I think everybody knows that, but um, been looking at, I'd started to last week talk about the Crusades, um, and as I was doing my studying this week, I kept referring back to this event, an important event that I didn't remember talking about. So before we get into the Crusades, we need to jump back about 40 years uh, and talk about something that I missed that, that's important. So, um, Because it will relate to the Crusades and the mindset there. Uh, and that event is called the Great East-West Schism of 1054 AD. Schism between the East and the Western Church. It's a split or divide. Um, we've been looking at that theme throughout all of history, seeing how the East and the West have been parting ways and in their beliefs, parting ways politically, sometimes even fighting each other. Um, and so a significant event happened in 1054 that we need to uh, pause and look at. And then we'll get into a couple of the Crusades later today. Um, and so for the schism, we need to go back to the, the Vikings, the Normans that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, and how during this time period they were posing a threat to all of Europe. They were invading along the coastlines and up and down the rivers. Uh, and so when we get into the, the early thousands, uh, really the 1050s, we had these Normans um, in, in posing a problem to the Byzantine Empire uh, in two different places. They were, uh, they were threatening them actually in Constantinople. Um, and then at this time, the Byzantine Empire controlled land in southern Italy, south of Rome, and the Normans were invading that area as well. Uh, and so the Byzantines were struggling to fend off the Normans in two separate locations. Uh, and so we see a rare instance where the East and the West formed an alliance to try to deal with this Viking threat. Uh, and so we had the Byzantine Emperor Constantine the Ninth uh, formed an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor Henry the Third, and Pope Leo the Ninth. Uh, and so these three powerful individuals, two in the West and uh, and one in the East, formed an alliance to deal with the Norman threat. Uh, in order to sort of secure this alliance, uh, the Emperor Constantine, in the the Byzantine Emperor, uh, required that uh, his We'll call it his pope, his patriarch, the patriarch of Constantinople, uh, acknowledged the authority of the pope in Rome. Because he, he was trying to make an alliance with the pope, so he's telling his local guy, hey, like, you know, kiss up to him. We need to be friends with Rome, so acknowledge that he's the authority over you. Uh, that patriarch was a man named Michael uh, Cellularius, uh, and he said no. Uh, he refused, of course. <laughs> Why, why wouldn't he? Uh, instead, he re, uh, you're going to say he responded by excommunicating him. No, not yet. <laughs> it is coming. Uh, he responded by writing a letter uh, to the Pope uh, and, and actually addressed to all of the Western church um, in general, detailing the areas of doctrine and practice in which he thought the Western church had it wrong. Uh, not a good thing to do if you want to make friends. But he spelled out all of the different things they were doing that the Eastern Church didn't agree with and sent it to him as a, like, hey, if we're going to be friends, you need to fix all of this. Um, which, of course, Pope Leo didn't, didn't take that well. Um, so he responded by asking one of his cardinals, and you'll remember a cardinal is 
um, a, like a leader of a local church in the Rome area who's been raised up to kind of second in command, if you will. There's a group of cardinals in the Catholic Church. Uh, and so he asked Cardinal Humbert to respond by writing a letter back to him, uh, talking about just how awesome the Pope is and all these decrees that Hildebrand had made about how the Pope is the messenger from God and all of this and just puffing up the Pope. And uh, Of course, it can't come from the Pope. Like, look how great I am. That's why he had the Cardinal guy write that letter to him. Yeah, I guess, of course. Um, and so uh, Cardinal Humbert wrote that letter and sent that um, back to um, Michael, the, the, the patriarch. In the meantime, the, the Norman army in southern Italy uh, was doing battle with um, forces under Pope Leo, uh, and they succeeded. They, they conquered them in a pretty major military battle down there, uh, which sort of made this important again. Was, hey, we need to figure this out fast. This Byzantine land here is in danger. You know, the army in the area just got wiped out. Uh, and so, again, the emperor asks Michael to compromise with Pope Leo, try to find common ground. We need more support from the West over here. Um, so Pope Leo, in, in trying to deal with Michael, then sends some delegates to Constantinople to talk to Michael the Patriarch. Um, he sends Cardinal Humbert, uh, and he sends two other men, I couldn't find their names, but history describes them as two of the most stubborn and least diplomatic men in the history of history. <laughs> so these, these two individuals, as you can imagine, were probably not going to make very good headway. Uh, and so they went to Constantinople to meet with Michael and try to reach an agreement. Uh, meanwhile, Pope Leo IX died. I'm not sure what of. Natural causes... Probably poisoning, yes. <laughs> a rival pope knocked him off. Uh, and so when the news of his death reached Constantinople, uh, Michael said, oh, well, these guys representing Pope Leo, Pope Leo's dead, so these guys now have no authority to speak for the Western Church. So he refused to continue to deal with them. Uh, this frustrated uh, the Cardinal Humbert so much that he marched into the great church there in Constantinople, the Hagia Sophia, and put down a letter on the table um, that excommunicated uh, the Patriarch, Markle, Patriarch Michael and also anathematized, which is a little less than excommunication, um, all of the Eastern Church. <laughs> so it was a very serious thing to march into their main church and do that. Uh, it was trivial. It was things like, should we use leavened or unleavened bread in communion? And those types of important details. Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't no. So that's why we are better than them. But <laughs> Yeah, so they were arguing over semantics, silly stuff. I mean, there was probably some important things. We've seen differences in their views of the Trinity and use of icons and things and I think there are believers in the Catholic Church today, so there are probably believers in the Eastern Orthodox Church today, despite the things that we would disagree with them on a lot of. So, uh, so we had uh, 
Humbert excommunicates and anathematizes the entire Eastern Church. Uh, and so Patriarch, Mark, Patriarch Michael, I don't know why that's so hard to say, responds by uh, anathematizing Humbert and the men with him. Didn't go so far as to excommunicate, I'm not sure why, but they these groups formally kicked each other out of the church, you might say. Uh, and that sort of wraps up the event. There was no, no great fallout that happened after that. Humbert and the guys went back, and there wasn't the support, and eventually the Vikings did their Viking thing and settled down. And, um, but it affected the way East and West now thought of each other. Both groups thought the other group had been formally removed from the church and, and was currently not in good standing as, as a Christian church. Pope Leo the Tenth? No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. There were probably two of them. I can tell you that much. <laughs> um, and so this this really separated the identity of East and West churches, the way they saw each other, and it would have severe consequences in the coming Crusades. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, Interesting little side note, uh, as I said, this was a formal excommunication uh, of, of East and West by each other, and those stood and were recognized throughout most of the rest of church history. It was, uh, anybody want to guess at what year the East and West actually took back those excommunications? My wife can't guess because we already talked about this. No. 1983. Close. <laughs> 1965, Pope Paul VI and the Patriarch Athenagoras formally rescinded those excommunications and anathemas against each other. Wow. Say them again. 1965. Really? Wow. I have it on good authority that Les was actually part of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did you? That's good. So over 900 years that uh, that East and West were going to not recognize each other as being part of the church. Um, so now we'll get back to the Crusades with this understanding in mind. Uh, and before we go into some in-depth with specific Crusades, um, one more thing I wanted to mention. Last week we talked about part of the motivation, the mindset behind the Crusades, what was going on. Uh, and another point that I, I missed um, had to do with the timing. Uh, the first crusade kicked off uh, in the year, I think it was 1095, um, which if you do some little bit of rounding math, we're looking at basically a thousand years since Jesus was on the earth. Um, and so for, for the church, many of them were thinking, it's been a thousand years. Revelation talks about a thousand years. Maybe it's time for God to come back. Maybe he's late because the Muslims have Jerusalem. So that was another part of their reasoning for why they needed to go and free Jerusalem, is that God couldn't come back, but he was due back, and so he needed their help. So they were thinking end times as well. They were thinking, we go conquer Jerusalem, Jesus comes back, and, and it's all over. Um, so there were uh, numerous crusades, various sizes, some were successful if you measure it from a military standpoint i don't think any of them were successful from an evangelism standpoint 
Um, but historians tend to agree that there were four major crusades uh, and then a number of lesser crusades. With, which tend to, some of them have unique names. Uh, the very, very first crusade that, that we recognize was a lesser one. and uh, was a very tragic one. It was known as the People's Crusade. Uh, it was inspired by a French monk named Peter the Hermit, uh, who was a very, very good speaker. He would travel around preaching, and it was said that wherever he preached, people were convicted, people repented of their sins, people changed their ways. He was an effective, uh, I don't know if he was a fire and brimstone or what his approach was, but he got people to repent and follow him. Uh, and he had the, the vision of needing to go and crusade. Well, I'm not sure what his motivation was, but he managed to raise an army of about 20,000 commoners. Not soldiers, not knights, just the common people who loved Peter the Hermit and were ready to march with him to the Holy Land. Uh, and so they headed for Jerusalem on foot. And they sort of gathered as a group uh, initially in Germany and Manfred shared an interesting detail with me uh, last week that, that my research corroborated. Uh, so I'll give you some credit there, Manfred. Uh, one of the more tragic things they did as they were uh, marching through southern Germany, headed for the Promised Land, is that they killed all of the Jews they encountered as they marched through there. Uh, and the reason for that is because these were common folk. They were, they were farmers. They were merchants. And they were leaving their homes behind for they didn't know how long. But the Jewish people in the area were staying. And uh, they were worried that the Jews were going to take over the markets, if you will. That the Jewish merchants were going to establish businesses and run them out of town. And they wouldn't be able to come back and make a living. So to prevent that from happening, you just kill off all the Jews. And that's what they did. So as I mentioned, it was very tragic. Uh, and so they, they did that. They headed for the Holy Land. Uh, they made it as far as uh, what's called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, and you remember the, the main group of Muslims in power politically at the time were the Seljuk Turks, who called Turkey their home. Uh, and the Turks had been for a long time doing battle regularly with the Byzantine Empire and were experienced soldiers and experienced military so this army of 20,000 commoners got wiped out. They, they stood no chance. Um, they were killed there in Turkey, never made it anywhere close to Jerusalem. Somehow Peter the Hermit survived and escaped. I don't know where he hid or what he did. Um, but he would actually go on to join and, and be there and march into Jerusalem with the first crusade, the major one that we call the first crusade. Um, but... The, the people that followed Peter didn't. So that was the People's Crusade, one of the lesser ones. Uh, and so the First Crusade, I, I mentioned it a little bit last week because we were looking at what motivated it. We saw that uh, the Byzantine Empire was struggling in their battles with the Seljuk Turks, and they had appealed to Pope Urban II uh, asking for aid from the Western, uh, Western European kingdoms and nations. Uh, and so Urban had seen it as an opportunity for him to gain support and power because there were two popes at the time and he needed to get people to rally around him to secure his claim to the papal throne. Um, and so this crusade was formed. Uh, it had uh, some pretty particular noblemen, men of renown. We had um, 
Hugh of Vermandois, who was the brother of King Philip I of France, so not the king, but brother to the king, um, Godfrey of Boulogne and his brothers Eustace and Baldwin, the three of them were descended from the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne, uh, who was a famous, famous ruler from history. Uh, there was a man named Raymond of Toulouse who was from Spain and was actually an experienced commander in fighting the Muslims there in southern Spain. Um, there was Robert of Normandy who was the son of the famous William the Conqueror. Uh, from England, so a lot of n none of these guys, you know, were the kings themselves, but they were high up and they were important and they were tied to important people. And so they, these leaders, uh, and their and their armies all gathered together for the first crusade. Uh, interestingly, interestingly enough, you'd think with so many great potential leaders that uh, they would have a maybe a successful group, but leadership proved to be their biggest plague uh, because they failed to appoint one single commander. So all of these men thought that they should be the rulers and had their own ideas of what their forces should do, and there wasn't unity in this First Crusade army. Um, they still managed to be successful, so all of them gathered together in response to uh, the summoning of the Eastern Empire. They gathered in Constantinople uh, in the year AD 1096, uh, and some estimates number them as having as many as 300,000 uh, people with them in their army. Uh, commoners, but also a lot of professional knights that we talked about last week. So this was an army, not just a group of common people. Uh, meanwhile, the Turks at this time, were, it took long enough to get the army over there from when Byzantine had appealed that the Turks had started to fall apart internally. They were having their own internal squabbles and had actually broken up into a number of factions, uh, which would contribute to the success of the First Crusade. It's a lot easier to fight individual factions than a unified uh, entire people group. Uh, and so they did. It took them a number of years as they marched down through Turkey and eventually made it to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they sort of kicked things off in the year 1097, and by the summer, I think it was July 15th of 1099, they officially conquered Jerusalem. Um, they had conquered a number of places on the way, but that was kind of like, hey, we did it. We got Jerusalem. Um, we talked last week about their code of chivalry, the guiding principles of honor and things like that that were supposed to govern them. They threw that out the window and proceeded to slaughter every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem. Um, there's actually a, in my book, there was a little journal entry excerpt from somebody that mentions sort of that first day there was a group of survivors that had surrendered, Muslims, on the Temple Mount and, and were left there overnight and, and the, the army that they had surrendered to, you know, said, yeah, you know, we accept your surrender, you're under our protection, Stay on the Temple Mount area. Um, well, that night, a different group who didn't think any survivors should be left snuck up there and killed them all. So that was that was what the Crusaders were doing. I mean, from killing Jews back in the People's Crusade, and now here, I mean, there were Jews in Jerusalem at this time. It wasn't all Muslims, but they killed everybody. Um, they then set up uh, four new nations. They call them the Crusader States down there in the Holy Land. We had the County of Edessa, the Principality of Antioch, 
the county of Tripolis, and the kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, they turned to Godfrey of Bouillon. Uh, he was known for being sort of a, a monk in knight's armor. He was a very godly man and offered him the title king of Jerusalem. Uh, but he declined. He refused. Uh, he accepted the authority position but refused the title because uh, he didn't want to be called king and wear a crown where Jesus had been hung as the king of kings and worn a crown of thorns. Um, so a very, very noble response there, if you will, by uh, Godfrey. Uh, instead, he gave himself the title Defender of the Holy Tomb, which I thought was interesting because I, I don't understand why an empty tomb needs defending. But <laughs> he was Defender of the Holy Tomb. So he, he ruled the kingdom of Jerusalem uh, for only a year, and then he died uh, and was succeeded by his brother Baldwin, who had, you know, was also with them. Uh, and Baldwin gladly accepted the title of king and became king of Jerusalem and wore a crown uh, and ruled for almost the next two dec- decades from there, uh, continuing to fight Muslims in that region and, and actually grow and expand the kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, so as, as horrible as, as what happened in the First Crusade was from... I mean, just from a humane standpoint, slaughtering people that have surrendered, is, you know, that goes against even the laws of war today, um, the way they treated them. Uh, the impact on the church was also very significant. Um, because as I mentioned, not only did they slaughter Muslims and Jews as they journeyed there, um, but they also mistreated Eastern Christians and Eastern churches that they encountered as they went from Constantinople to Jerusalem. The, the Western nations, anytime they came across an Eastern Orthodox church, would march in and forcibly change it to a Catholic church. They would remove the, the leaders of it and their practices, get rid of their icons, and, and try to make it become a Catholic church as they went. Uh, and so they really made the Eastern church hate the Western church. Uh, the schism had already happened, and now this is the way they're treating each other. I don't think the Eastern had split yet at that point into into groups like the Greek or the Russian Orthodox or the Eastern. I think those are the three main. I think they were still identifying as the Orthodox or the Eastern Church um, under the the Patriarch. But they they didn't look to the Patriarch of Constantinople as like the head of the whole thing, the way that the Western looks to the Pope. Um, and so the the Russian church uh, and the Greek church and the different, you know, Antioch and some of these other places had their own patriarchs that were considered on equal footing with the patriarch of Constantinople. In fact, it got, uh, getting back to my point about the churches <laughs> hating each other, it got so bad at some points during the Crusades that uh, Eastern, Eastern Christians, Eastern nations actually often joined forces with the Muslims to fight against the Crusaders who had stuck around um, because the Crusaders were a much crueler enemy than the Muslims ever had been. Uh, So that wraps up the First Crusade. Uh, In AD 1144, so about 50 years later, not quite, the county of Edessa, one of those four Crusader states, was conquered uh, by a, a fresh army of the Turks. They kind of recovered from their losses 50 years later, had a new army put together, and they conquered the first of these uh, crusader states. And that leads to the Second Crusade. 
Um, but before we get into the Second Crusade, we're going to go down a rather long rabbit trail here uh, and talk about um, the man behind the Second Crusade. So when news of the conquest of the county of Edessa reached Western Europe, uh, the Pope at the time, named Pope Eugenius III, uh, that's a great name, why be Eugene? Well, you can make it Eugenius, and then it's, hey, Eugenius, <laughs> right? So if I become Pope. <laughs> uh, pope Eugenius declared a new crusade. Um, the man who would inspire the crusade, though, wasn't Pope Eugenius. It was one of the greatest theologians of the Middle Ages and speakers, uh, a man known as Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a monk. Um, if you've studied church history, there's a good chance you've heard of him. Uh, next to Francis of Assisi, he's probably the most famous monk from the Middle Ages. Uh, so Bernard was one of six children in his family. His parents had all boys. Uh, the other five boys were all, uh, so I mentioned he was an aristocratic family. Um, they were a family with wealth and, you know, they picked where their kids were going to go. They weren't just going to be commoners. So all five of his brothers got the route towards knighthood. You know, that was the thing to be back then. Crusade had already happened. Knights were in vogue. So his brothers were going to become knights. But Bernard um, didn't get that path because his mom had had a dream that he was destined for greater things. Uh, and so instead of the knight path, Bernard was um, sent to school and higher education and eventually would go to seminary uh, in pursuit of, uh, of theology and, and what that might detail for him. Um, his mother died when he was uh, fairly young, late teens, early 20s, uh, and that proved to be uh, very traumatic for Bernard. He was close to his mother. Uh, and so at that time, he, he wrestled with continuing to pursue his, you know, his plan that had been in place for all his life. Do I continue with theology or do I uh, just, you know, pursue my own self-indulgence and be the, the wild young man? Um, but he made the decision in A.D. of 1112, uh, at the age of 22, to become a monk. That was this fateful turning point for Bernard. Uh, and so he joined an order of Cistercian monks at a community in Citeaux, France, uh, which was known for a particularly plain and ascetic lifestyle. They didn't have uh, a fancy monastery building. They didn't have elaborate stained glass windows. They were just a very plain place. And so that was the the type of uh, establishment that Bernard joined. Uh, three years later, in AD 1115, he and 12 other monks branched out to do a, we would call it a church plant, a new monastery plant, um, near the city of Champagne. Uh, they settled into a little valley, a rather desolate and bleak place known as the Valley of Wormwood. Um, but they established a monastery there, and they renamed the valley uh, the Valley of Light, which the French word for that is Clairvaux. So we have Bernard of Clairvaux. That's, that would be his home for the rest of his life, and, and that's where he's known from. So the Valley of Light. Uh, Bernard would go on to serve as the abbot, the leader of that monastery, uh, and it prospered under his teaching, and it continued to send out plants and other places. And um, Bernard was a very good preacher. He was such a passionate preacher uh, that he was given the nickname the Honey Flowing Teacher just flowed right off of his tongue and his words were sweet. What's that? You 
used car salesman? Yeah, yeah, he would have been a good one of those. Unfortunately, he was a good used armor salesman when it came to uh, crusade time. So. Um, his guiding principle in his teaching was uh, not so much to explain the words as to reach the people's hearts. That was his goal in his sermons. He almost always preached about love. Uh, he would talk about God's love for his people, Jesus' love for the church, and the believer's response of love to God and to Jesus. Every sermon, in some way or another, was tied to this idea of love. Bernard was also especially good at uh, making people who listened to his sermons sort of forget about the, the present day and their worries and troubles and view things in light of eternity and think about, you know, God and, and let, you know, the things of earth fade away, as the song goes. Bernard was good at that. Um, in fact, Bernard was so captivating that it, it was said that when he was scheduled to speak at a particular location, wives would hide their husbands and mothers their sons, lest they hear Bernard speak and run away from home to become monks themselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't hide their men when it came crusading time. We're going to see that. Uh, Bernard wrote uh, quite a number of books and is even credited with authoring a few hymns as well that, uh, that are still with us today. I didn't recognize any titles that we sing here, but they're probably in French for one thing. Maybe that, yeah. So uh, Bernard then would prove very influential because of his uh, his abilities as a speaker uh, in shaping how the church viewed both Jesus and Mary at the time. Uh, under his preaching, the church started to focus less on seeing Jesus as this risen Savior and more on Jesus as the man of sorrows, hanging on a cross uh, who could identify with our troubles. Um, these were trying times. There was war, there was infighting in the Western nations. I think the Black Plague is headed this way soon. Uh, I don't know, you know, the medieval ages weren't always an easy time. And so a Jesus that can identify with us, with our troubles, was a very appealing Jesus to them. Uh, as for Mary, Bernard had a special affection for her. Uh, that began in his childhood when he had a very vivid dream about Mary. Apparently, his mom wasn't the only dreamer in the family. Bernard had had a dream about Mary and, and made him just feel a special affection for her. He described Mary as the violet of humanity, the lily of chastity, the rose of purity, and the splendor of heaven. Uh, he saw and really pushed for Mary as being the intercessor between man and Jesus. He said, if, if you are afraid to go to God the Father turn to Jesus. If you're afraid to go to Jesus, go to Mary. Um, he didn't believe in the what's called the Immaculate Conception, which is that Mary was conceived without sin, as, you know, as we say Jesus was. Um, that was something being pushed at the time, and he very outspokenly rejected it, um, which was something that is a reason the Catholic Church kind of doesn't love to talk about Bernard because they hold to that and they don't like that he didn't agree with that. Um, Bernard was so popular and influential that his advice and support were sought all over the Western Church, despite the fact that he was just the abbot of a little monastery in an ugly valley in France. Uh, and so 
when the situation arose in which there were two men claiming to be Pope, uh, it was uh, the support of Bernard that would ultimately decide the matter. Um, reading about that made me think of Hamilton. I don't know if you guys listened to or watched that one, but you get to where it's uh, uh, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson battling for president, and the, it comes down to, hey, Alexander Hamilton, who do you support? And that's the guy that wins. It was the same here. You had two popes, and it was, hey, Bernard, who do you support? All right, that's the pope. Uh, and so... Uh, this happened a particular time, and uh, Bernard traveled to Rome to show his support to the man that he was uh, favoring. Uh, and while he was there, he picked up a disciple, a guy also named Bernard. Um, just, It's not going to be too confusing, though, because this Bernard, who is a disciple of his, eventually goes on to become Pope Eugenius III. So now we don't have to call him Bernard anymore, so we can keep this straight. Uh, and so, when the county of Edessa falls and Pope Eugenius III calls for a crusade, he, of course, turns to his mentor, the honey-flowing teacher, and asks him to rally support for a second crusade. Uh, so Bernard agrees and begins to tour Western Europe, uh, preaching a message of love for God, uh, responding, right? He's always talking about love. So how do we respond in love for God? Well, now it's by going on a crusade. It's time to go get his land back <laughs> as it's starting to fall. <laughs> oh, yeah, all that's still on the table, too, of course. Uh, so I have a short example, actually, from one of his, uh, I said, one of his recorded sermons, but it was not, this is not available on sermon audio due to technological difficulties. <laughs> Uh, he says, the earth trembles and shakes because the king of heaven has lost his country, the country where once he appeared to men, where he walked among them for more than 30 years, the country made glorious by his miracles and holy by his blood, the country where the flowers of the resurrection first bloomed. And now, because of our sins, the enemy of the cross has begun to lift his blasphemous head there and to devastate with his sword that blessed land of promise. The great eye of providence surveys these acts in silence. It wishes to see if there is anyone who seeks God, anyone who suffers with him in his sorrow, anyone who will restore his heritage to him. I say to you, the Lord is testing you. It's a little manipulative. <laughs> and so that was the type of message. You going on a crusade, Gary? <laughs> okay. Chris, hide him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so under the the preaching of Bernard, the Second Crusade took shape. Uh, this time was led by even higher men. We had King Louis the Seventh of France and the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad the Third. And so these two men were the main leaders. Um, but this time the Byzantines hadn't actually asked for help. It was just the West deciding to go do their thing. Uh, and so when these armies showed up in Constantinople, they received no support. They, they weren't excited to have them. It wasn't like, yay, the reinforcements we were looking for from the First Crusade. Uh, and so they just sent them on their way without provisions. Well, these armies struggled to fight their way through Turkey, because uh, at this point the Turks are actually doing well. I mean, they conquered the county of Edessa. Uh, and so most of the Second Crusade army died in Turkey. Uh, they only made it as far as Damascus. They laid siege to Damascus, uh, which ultimately failed, and they retreated and returned home to the west. 
Um, and so when the first crusade had resulted in the Eastern Church hating the West for, for their behavior, uh, this lack of support from the East now made the West Church angry with the Easterners. Like, hey, we sent our armies, you should have helped them out or something. And so uh, two crusades and we've got East and West pretty thoroughly hating each other. Um, combined with the schism that had already happened, the mindset there, uh, we really are getting a complete separation of the East and Western churches. So we're about out of time, but I have one more interesting note. Um, there was one other group headed for the Holy Land about the same time as the Second Crusade, not formally with them, but a, a group. Uh, it was an army of knights who came from England and Flanders, which is modern-day Belgium, uh, and they were going by boat. They were sailing around the Atlantic with plans to go through the Mediterranean. Uh, but on the way there, they found a Muslim-fortified city, uh, and so they attacked it, and it was the city of Lisbon. Uh, and so uh, Lisbon, uh, at this point, that's in you know southern Spanish territory down on the Iberian Peninsula. So they, it was still part Muslim in that area. So they conquer Lisbon, uh, true to crusader fashion. They wipe out every inhabitant, man, woman, and child of it. And instead of pressing on, they settled. They just stayed there, started a new crusader state. Uh, do you guys know what they named their new crusader state? Portugal. This is how the nation of Portugal was founded. So it was already called Lisbon, but now the state, the area, got the name Portugal, founded by crusaders. So next week we'll uh, hopefully touch on the third and fourth crusades, maybe mention some other lesser ones, and then uh, sort of recap on the impact on the church. Any questions? <laughs>